0: I told Joe that I was going to get to this illustration last week and never did. So I'm going to start with it (laughs) this week. He knows what it is. Back in the 18th century, there was a young boy who was born into a Christian home. And for the first six years of his life, he heard the truths of the gospel. He was loved by his parents. But sadly, his parents died. And the orphan boy went to live with relatives And with these relatives, he was mistreated, he was abused, he was ridiculed, all for his faith in Jesus Christ. The boy couldn't tolerate the situation, so he fled and he joined the Royal Navy. In the Navy, this boy's life went completely downhill. He became known as a brawler, he was whipped many times on the ships. He participated with some some of his comrades in what's called keel hauling. Anybody know what that is? In keel hauling, a, a line is tied to a sailor. And then the line is looped under the keel of the ship. And then the guys at this end of the line, they pull the sailor under the keel and back over to the surface. And it can be done the length of the ship as well. And this common, the common supposition was that keelhauling either amounted to a sentence of death, very few survived it, st- extreme torture at the least, and the person would have been permanently maimed. This is what our boy in question participated in doing to his mates. While he was still young, the boy deserted the Royal Navy and he fled to Africa. And there he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader. But there his life reached the lowest point. There were times when he had to eat off the floor on his hands and knees. He escaped after a time of being a slave in Africa to Africans. He was a slave for a year in Africa. And eventually he attached himself to another slave trader and he became the first mate on the ship. But the young man's pattern of life had become so depraved he couldn't stay out of trouble. As the story goes, he stole the ship's whiskey, and he got so drunk that he fell overboard. He was close to drowning, and one of his shipmates grabbed a harpoon and threw it at him, stuck him in the side, and pulled him back up onto the the boat. The young man had a huge scar in his side the rest of his life. After that escapade, you would think his life could get much lower, but years later, as a captain of his own slave ship, in the midst of a great storm off the coast of Scotland, when days were filled day after day of pumping water out of the boat and the storm just kept coming and they kept pumping and his strength was giving out. To when he could do no more, the man began to reflect on the scriptures that he had heard as a small child. And he was marvelously converted. And he became a well-known pastor and preacher who was instrumental along with William Wilberforce to be used of God to end the slave trade in the British Empire. The man's name was Martin Newth- Martin. New- <laughs> yeah, Martin. John Newton. <laughs> John Newton. And his life, his new life in Christ, can be found in his own heartfelt words that he wrote that millions know today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now... I see and Newton's experience puts into words the ultimate point of our text in Romans chapter three this morning in spite of his sin in spite of what he had done and who he is the question how is a man made right with God was discovered by John Newton and discovered by all who come to faith in Jesus Christ it's it's what we can't do for ourselves. What we could never accomplish in our own sinful humanness when we were totally and utterly helpless. And as Paul put it in the letter to the Ephesians, we are without hope and without God in the world. God breaks into our lives, into our situation. And God does what we cannot do, what we could never do. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous, right with God as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 through 26, we have the crux. We have the essential truths, the essential truths of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, when I read it a little while ago in Romans 3, you probably had trouble following Paul's main point. All we have to do is look at the vocabulary list. We see some words we're used to, grace and faith. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. But we see some words we're not very used to. Righteousness, justification, propitiation, redemption. I'm sure something immediately came to your mind when I said the word propitiation, right? <laughs> no, we, you know, what, what is that? How do we picture it? We seldom, if ever, use these words in everyday conversation. But even though this passage of Scripture sounds a little disconnected, it's a little hard to follow, it's a masterful, logical statement of the supreme reason for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's a lot of good stuff here. So as we begin to unpack it a little bit today, about what Paul is saying about the glorious gospel, I think we're going to have a great time in, in, in God's word. So the first word I want you to see is the word glory. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 again. Verse 23. That familiar verse in the 23rd, uh, in the 23rd verse of uh, chapter 3. The word glory, the glory of God. Verse 23 puts the entire passage into a, a context that we can begin to understand For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God. We must understand the supreme importance of the glory of God. Why? We live in an utterly man-centered era. We live in a time when everything focuses on us and focuses on self people live for self-fulfillment self-gratification self-pleasure self-realization selfies (laughs) and really little else people in our society are pretty much absorbed with their own feelings their own emotions their own possessions their own rights their own successes their own safe places where nobody says anything that offends them or is against them They seldom look outside I, the ego. Remember you studied the I in school, the ego? And so you could sum it up by saying, our society suffers from a severe and fatal case of selfism. Selfism. And the sad part is that it's even finding its way into Christianity. I happen to be looking at a contemporary worship song this last week, which was, it's a very popular one. It's called I Am Free, and people love to sing it. And if you count the number of times that I is used, there's 25 times that it's I, the ego. And many times Christians in large large measures are people, and people who call themselves Christians, manifest a pervading selfism. You know, all we have to do is look at some of the reasons that people say they have come to Christ or why they're invited to Christ. Uh, John MacArthur lists some of these reasons that people are invited to come to Christ today. He writes, for example, people are invited to come to Christ because he'll solve their problems. They come to Christ because he'll give them peace and joy and happiness and answer and solution to all their dilemmas. Come to Christ because he'll keep them out of hell. Come to Christ because he makes life worth living. And when you come to Christ, you find yourself preoccupied with your own personal satisfaction. And you're instructed further that if you're obedient and you're being obedient, you'll be blessed. And if you go to church, you'll be blessed. If you learn certain spiritual truths, you'll get blessed. And if you give, you'll get blessed. So that idea of self-fulfillment sort of runs rampant, he says, even through our perceptions of the Christian faith, unquote. Now, certainly there are blessings in salvation, and we don't want to discount those. Read the first uh, portion of Ephesians chapter 1 sometime, where we're blessed with every heavenly blessing. You know it's it's a great section but the the problem with the self-centered approach and what you get out of it if you come to faith is that we know very little about glorifying god in spite of the the contemporary worship worship trend in our country today most american christians know very little about what it really means to worship and glorify god and they seem to know a whole lot about seeking personal satisfaction even in the the spiritual dimension. Someone has said that in contemporary worship, dying to self seems to be a lost art. A lost art. The Bible teaches us that contrary to this perspective of selfism, is the perspective that everything a man or woman does, and everything you do as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, the single primary objective is what? The glory of God. The glory of God. Everything ultimately is for God's glory. That's why the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. That all things were made by God and what? For him. Everything is God's glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 we read. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do what? Do all for the glory of God. The psalmist declared in the 115th Psalm, the first verse, Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Everything is for God's glory, and we somehow evaded that very basic truth in great measure in our society. But now of all the spiritual realities that are designed to glorify God, The single greatest thing that brings God glory. The single greatest thing that brings God glory. Is a person's salvation. Is a person's salvation. That God would take a wretch like John Newton. (laughs) That God would take somebody like me. Somebody like you. And bring you into a saving relationship with God by grace through faith. When you can't do thing one about it. You can never do thing one about your sinful, decrepit, depraved condition. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Yet as the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. When sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Through Christ, God did it all. The greatest miracle in all the world that God takes a dead man or a dead woman. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. What can a dead person do? Nana, nothing, not a thing. God would take somebody dead in their trespasses of sins and give them life in Jesus Christ. In while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. You know, every way you look at salvation, you see it's the one thing that brings God the most glory. Salvation glorifies God. And we have words that are many facets of salvation. Redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation, regeneration, forgiveness. Salvation is like a many-faceted diamond. The Bible approaches in a myriad of ways, all these ways that, that glorify God. God speaks of himself as a saving God. Salvation is the first and foremost way of glorifying God. And we miss its point. When we make salvation only as a way to make man better or a way to get man to heaven, we miss the point rather than to glorify God. Salvation must glorify God. And the fact that it does something for us is secondary. I really appreciate that secondary part. <laughs> but the fact that it does something for me is secondary. The cross of Jesus Christ had a dramatic effect on man as it provided redemption, but primarily the cross was to glorify God. Turn over for a moment to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17 in in John's Gospel, the first verse of John chapter 17, page 1329. In John chapter 17, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room the night before he went to the cross, or they just left the upper room. It, it could be either way here. But in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. We call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Before going to the cross the next day, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And he prayed for us here today. Did you know that? That Jesus prayed for you the night before he went to the cross? Jesus prayed for everyone, all of us who would believe in the word of the apostles. That's what it says in verse 20. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. What was the word of the apostles? The New Testament. And so Jesus begins to pray in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh to, to whom all have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which was you have given me to do. Now, Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you before the world was the chief purpose then in christ's death on the cross was to glorify god the chief purpose in his death and this is important to note in understanding what paul is saying in romans chapter 3 as wonderful as it is to be saved as wonderful it is to be redeemed as wonderful it is to be justified to be sanctified being dwelt by the holy spirit of god as wonderful it is to be transformed into the image of christ from what from glory to glory to be given the gifts of the spirits so that we might serve god and serve one another to be destined for heaven and all of its glories to experience the blessings that christ has for us now all the joy and all fulfillment Primarily and foremost, the point of salvation is for God's glory. God's glory. The chief purpose in Christ's death, hang on this one as Christ hung on the cross. The chief purpose was to glorify God. Why does God save sinful human beings like you and me? To glorify himself. For the glory of God. The supreme reason for the death of Jesus Christ was to glorify God. Now we can go back to Romans chapter 3. Might be the longest introduction in the history of my sermons. (laughs) But But it was important. We're all very much aware that Jesus died for men. Jesus died for men. Jesus died for sinners, right? We are less aware, I am sure, that Jesus also died in a very real sense for God. Jesus died for the sake of God. And as we come to understand this far-reaching truth, it's just going to be wonderful. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24, 25, and 26. First of all, we'll see how God was glorified in that Christ died for mankind. And then we'll see how God was glorified in that Christ died for God. Christ died for God. So, verse 3, or verse 24 of Romans chapter 3. Because we are justified as a gift by God's grace, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. To be justified means that God declares us righteous. This is a little review from last week. To justify does not mean that God makes somebody righteous, but to declare him to be righteous. It's a forensic legal term of the court. That means to obtain the verdict of acquittal. Charles Hodge defined it. Justification is pronouncing one to be just and treating him accordingly. On the ground that the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning him. And how and why does God declare the sinner to be righteous? Remember what we learned last week? God is able to do what we can do for ourselves. That is turn a guilty person into a justified person. Remember, God does not turn a guilty person into an innocent person. We plead guilty at the cross of Jesus Christ. He turns us into a justified person whom God declares to be righteous. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was credited or accounted to him as righteousness. On account of Abraham believing God, God declared Abraham righteous, justified. And here's the point. All sinners can be right with God, justified through His free grace by trusting, believing in Jesus Christ and the redemption in Him. In Romans 3.24, the the verb is passive. It says being justified. Remember, passive voice from the seventh grade? Maybe, maybe not. But it's passive voice if it's something that is happening to the subject. So it's not something that... that, uh, it, turn that around. It is something that God does to us, not something that we do for ourselves or God even does for us. It's, it's not a process, but a judicial action that God declares us as righteous. Now, there is a thing called the process of becoming righteous in our actions and, and what we do. We call that becoming more and more conformed to the the image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. That's the sanctification process as we become in our lives more and more like Jesus Christ. And the book of Romans will have much more to say about that when we get to it in the next decade or two. But in trusting, but in turning a guilty person into a justified person, God is glorified in that Christ died for mankind. Next, we see in Romans 3.24 that God justifies sinners freely by his grace. See that in verse 24? Being justified as a gift by his grace. Now, the single word, there's a single word in the Greek that's translated as a gift there, and it means freely, freely. Jesus used it to say, they hated me without a cause. Read that into Romans 3.24. Being justified without a cause. Paul used the word to say that he did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. Again, we can say that we are justified without paying for it. It's used in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, where the thirsty souls encourage to take of the water of life without cost. We are justified without cost. It's completely free. And if that word alone were not enough to convey this astounding news, Paul adds one of his favorite words, and it should be our favorite word also. By his grace, grace, grace is God's favor shown to those who deserved his wrath and is completely unmerited. Look down at Romans chapter four, verse four for a moment. The fourth verse of Romans chapter four. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. The word translated favor there in the translation I'm using is the same word for grace. Grace. Chorus. Grace. If your name is Carissa or Karen, your name means grace. Now, when you work, you don't get grace. You get wages. You've worked for him, right? Your boss owes it to you. He must pay you or you can file legal charges against him, supposedly. But that's kind of hard to do when you're under his thumb all the time. But... But grace is the opposite of working and receiving what you are owed. With grace, you get undeserved favor. If you mess up, you deserve to get fired. But if your boss gave you a huge bonus instead, that's grace. That's grace. I remember when uh, Jan and I were in Kansas City. I was going to seminary, working in an architect's office. And right before Christmas, we'd had a whole fall of people in the architect's office getting laid off at work i mean it was just they're falling like flies around here and uh, so it was like two days before christmas might even have been christmas eve that makes the story better put it on tv that way (laughs) you know my boss came in first thing in the morning he's a he's a jewish guy really neat guy and he said you know uh, we can't do it right now but i want you to meet with all the bosses in my office at 11 o'clock and I called Jan and said, I think I'm getting laid off right before Christmas. You know, oh, this is, this is going to be bad because all kinds of people have been laid off. And so, you know, we prayed about it. I went in the office at 11 o'clock and my Jewish boss, he looked at me and said, you know, we don't, you don't normally give Christmas bonuses to people who aren't full time. And we don't want anybody else to know about this. But then he gave me a $500 check as a Christmas bonus. That is grace. Grace. Merry Christmas. (laughs) God justifies sinners who deserve his wrath freely by his grace. And the bonus is eternal life. That's just the bonus. The terrific news, if you are a guilty sinner, is declared just freely because of his grace. But frankly, it really doesn't seem right the way we think about things. If an earthly judge declares a guilty murderer, not guilty, in addition, awards him a healthy judgment and then says, I wanted to give you what you did not deserve, we would say, that's unjust. Every once in a while you see a story about some judge that let some really evil bad guy go. or, or you know. So how can God be just when he declares guilty sinners to be justified? If they don't deserve it. God justifies sinners through the redemption, which is in Jesus Christ. Verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption means to buy something back by the payment of a price. Or to release someone by the payment of a ransom. Means to buy back something or to buy someone back. In Paul's day, it referred to freeing prisoners of war and slaves by, requ- by paying the required price. The, the analogy when it comes to sin is that while we were enslaved to sin, we were slaves to sin. Jesus bought us off the auction block of sin with the price of his own blood. Now, Jesus used the word ransom, which is the root word for the word redemption. He used it in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Through his death, Jesus paid the price or the penalty that God righteously imposed on all our sins. And God's justice was satisfied. Paul will say he is just and he is the justifier of those who have faith in him. Jesus was our substitute. Paying what we could never have paid so that we go free at his great expense. Thus, justification is completely free for us, but it was costly to Jesus who redeemed us with his own blood. In the Old Testament, the chief picture of redemption was Israel's being freed from slavery in Egypt. To avoid the deaths of the firstborn sons, the Jews had to kill a lamb and had to place remember the blood on the doorpost doorpost and the lintels of their houses god saw the blood saw the sacrifice and passed over those homes jesus is our passover lamb slain to redeem us from our slavery to sin he paid the price that god required the crucifixion, the lifting up of Jesus on the cross, exalted and glorified both the Son and the Father when Jesus died for our sake. God's glory was displayed. But We also say in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that Jesus died for God's sake. God's glory was displayed when Jesus died for God's sake. Verse 25. Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The question is, how did God satisfy himself? How did Christ die for God's sake? And that's the question that Paul answers in our text. How can a holy God be just and yet justify sinners? How can he forgive our sins and still be a God of justice? Now, admittedly, I'm sure that question doesn't keep you up at night, (laughs) right? Probably you've never been asked that question when you've shared Christ with anybody. It probably seldom comes up in a Bible study or or a class. It's more likely that it might be put in these terms uh, why can't God just forgive everybody? Just a pronouncement of, of forgiveness and, and pay. All, all your debts are cleared. That's what the word one of the words for forgiveness means. It means the, the paying of the debt, the uh, canceling of the debt. Why can't God just do that? Why couldn't he just pronounce everybody forgiven? You know, because we kind of teach our kids to do that. You know, one of your kids slugs one kid, and then the, the, the kid that slugs has to go to the other kid and say, I'm sorry and the other kid says you're forgiven and all is better why can't God do that you can forgive like that you can forgive your brother like that but God can't do that because he's absolutely holy and you're not God must maintain his absolute justice in punishing all sin an unjust God would not be God at all would he and here's the rub. If God must punish all sin to maintain his absolute justice, then how can he forgive sinners? If a human judge starts showing love by pardoning, uh, pardoning murderers and terrorists and rapists, we'd say, wait a minute, that's horrible. He's not upholding justice. So the question that Paul is grappling with here is, how can a holy God be just if he pardons guilty sinners? How can he be a God of love and show mercy, and yet be God of righteousness and justice? The answer is... Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied God's wrath and displays his justice in justifying sinners who have faith in Jesus Christ. At the beginning of verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, Paul kind of sums up what he's been saying in verses 21 through 24 about salvation. He talks about Jesus, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. A great statement. God displayed publicly. At the cross, God displayed Jesus publicly. God displayed him. God put him on the cross. Yes, the Romans and the Jews, they helped and all that kind of thing. But it was God who put him up there. The source of salvation is God. God did it. Sinful man cannot generate his own salvation, right? So God is the source. It says God has publicly displayed him, verse 24. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. He's the agent of salvation. In other words, God sent Jesus into the world. He revealed him in the incarnation. He is the one savior God displayed on the cross. And notice it says that God sent him to earth, put him on display to be a propitiation. Anyone without a study Bible want to give a shot at that one? (laughs) That's why we have study Bibles. Basically, propitiation means satisfaction. It's a sacrifice that satisfies the demands. We really need to know that word. Propitiation, satisfaction. Jesus was a satisfaction. Well, who did, whom did he satisfy? Jesus satisfied God. Now, there are songs in the Christian hymn book that talk about Jesus satisfying us, and that's okay. I love those hymns. They're, they're wonderful. But that isn't what Romans chapter 3 is saying here. Jesus satisfied God. You see, God had to be satisfied, and Jesus met God's requirements when he sinned, and God was satisfied. That's what it means. It's through his blood it says that Jesus was a sacrificial, substitutionary death, and it's appropriated through through faith. Uh, this week when I was thinking of the song I Am Free that uses the word I 25 times I thought of another song that we like to sing around here in Christ alone in Christ alone you know that was written in 2002 that, that's a modern hymn but that, that's a you know and Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty are writing great hymns today uh, you know and, and I thought of the second verse which is Romans 325 all over the place in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as jesus died the wrath of god was satisfied i was reading on something the internet this week and i told you a few weeks ago that there are hymn books who are trying to get these guys to change the words they don't like the wrath of god was satisfied but it's Romans three twenty-five. That's the propitiation. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. The word "I" is used only once. It's all about. It's all about Christ. You've got God. You've got the source of salvation. You have Christ, the agent of salvation. You have the incarnation and revelation in terms of terms that are set forth, you've got Christ becoming the satisfaction of God's law and God's requirement because he died a sacrificial substitutionary death and God required blood, didn't he? And then you have the appropriation of the work of Jesus Christ through faith. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God is satisfied. And if you believe in him, your sins are forgiven, you are justified. But we have to end with this. Jesus is the satisfaction. Jesus is a satisfaction that is different from that of the Old Testament ones. In fact, you know something? Of all the millions and millions of animals that were slain in the Old Testament who were offered as sacrifices, God was never satisfied. Never. He was only satisfied ultimately with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All the rest of the sacrifices did not satisfy God. So what did they do? What was the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices? They symbolized, they pictured the one sacrifice that would satisfy God. They're very little different than what we do in the communion service this morning. Are you saved because you drink the cup and you eat the bread? There's people that teach that. Did you know that? There's people that teach that, that it comes through receiving the, the sacraments, that that's how you ultimately get saved or justified. Does just drinking the bread and eating, or drinking the bread, <laughs> eating the bread and drinking the cup, does that satisfy God's requirement? No, they are symbols of what God did through Christ to satisfy himself and glorify himself. What did satisfy? It was the actual body and the blood of, Of Jesus Christ. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. So on this side of the cross. We have our symbols. They don't satisfy God. Christ's sacrifice did. On the other side. On the Old Testament side. They had their symbols. They didn't satisfy God either. Christ did. So Christ primarily died. Not to satisfy man. But to satisfy God. So that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that is what we celebrate today when we take the Lord's Supper. Shall we pray? Father, it's just beyond sometimes all comprehension and and uh, beyond all knowledge, sometimes, Lord, but as we study these truths and see what, what you did for us by Jesus dying on the cross. Father, we're going to obey you right now. You tell us in, in your word through Jesus Christ to do this in remembrance of our Savior. Father, I just pray that in some way as we have looked at these very difficult but meaningful words that express the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. And as we partake of the elements, Father, I pray that that will just pour refreshed and deep meaning into what we are about to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.